What's up, hardcore humans? This is Dr. Mike with another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Very excited to share my conversation with Randy Bly of heavy metal titans, Lamb of God. Lamb of God recently released their self-titled 10th studio album that is getting some great reviews, so if you have a chance, check it out. Now, what we do here on the Hardcore Humanism podcast is talk with people who have put their purpose into action. Outside-the-box thinkers who defy conventional norms, understand who they are and what they want to do with their life, and work hard to achieve their dreams. And we hope that you not only enjoy the conversation, but also come away with a new idea, a lesson, or inspiration that you can apply in your own life to fulfill your life's purpose and optimize your physical, mental, spiritual health and well-being. Now, when I talked to Randy, I wanted to discuss with him a cool concept that he talked about in a previous interview, the concept of being protean. The term protean means the ability to change frequently and easily. And this is very important in our path to live out our life's purpose for a couple of reasons. The first is that we often don't know what the ideal path is for us. We may have expectations and preconceived notions about the ideal path that seem right, but aren't necessarily optimal for us. And so we need to be able to connect in with ourselves as well as the world around us so that we can be open to new and exciting ideas and avenues. Plus, being protean allows us to cope with difficult circumstances and adapt to what life throws at us. As an example, Randy and I actually had to record this podcast three times because we had technical problems the first two times. And Randy demonstrated the benefits of the protean mindset because he just rolled with it and was super cool about having to talk to me a few times. Truth be told, I was kind of bummed when we finished the podcast because I was enjoying getting to talk with him on a fairly regular basis. So I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope that you do. Let's hear how being protean plays a big part in Randy's life. So we are here with the mighty Randy Bly of the mighty Lamb of God, and we are going to talk about many topics today, but we are going to start out with a comment that Randy made in a recent interview about the concept that life is protean, which I thought was a very interesting concept. And Randy, why don't we start out with, with that concept and what you meant by that and what that idea means to you? It means that life is ever-shifting, ever-changing. It's never static. I think there's a saying, the, the only constant is change. You know, I've heard that before. And I believe that to be 100% truth. And I think it becomes problematic, and I can only speak for myself, when we stay in the mindset that, okay, this is my life, and this is how it's going to be, as it is right now, whether that be good or bad. You know, I actually just had a, a right before this, a friend of mine called me, he's like, Hey, can you talk for a minute? I'm like, well, actually, I have to talk to psychology today in 15 minutes. But yes, because he, he, I could tell something was the matter with him. He was feeling upset about the way his life is set up. And he was wondering about the purpose of it because he has a good long-term career plan and so forth. And he's just like, I'm just wondering, is there any point to this? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you know, dude, one thing is, is that you're not stuck in any one thing. Things can change. You know, your life can change at any particular moment. You're not cemented into this life plan that you have. And your life may change in wildly uncomfortable ways. And you'll go down a different path. And that's okay, you know, because I've been through some wildly uncomfortable changes in my life before. 
I think the thing that makes it easier going through these uncomfortable changes is just accepting the fact that things are going to change. You know, if I have expectations that things are going to remain the same, I'm going to get let down again and again and again and again. If I'm realistic about the fact that things are going to change, then my life tends to go a lot smoother because life is protean. It is ever moving. It is ever shifting. It is ever changing. We need to adapt to different circumstances, you know, whether they be physical, financial, emotional, whatever. And on a physical level, when I hear people complain about getting older, oh, it hurts, you know, because I hurt as I get older, I always say, well, it's better than the alternative. You know, your body's changing as you get older. And yes, it hurts, but it's still here. It's still your body. My dad told me one time right before I, I turned 40, and he said, well, son, if you're upset about turning 40, don't worry. You won't be 40 for long. <laughs> you know, and I think that kind of sums it up. So, you know, things move, things change. And my life, if I don't have these expectations that things are going to be the same, I'm not saying don't make a plan, just throw yourselves to the winds of fate or whatever. But if I accept the fact that things change, my life is going to go a lot smoother because those are, you know, when I put expectations on things, I'm bound to, to meet disappointment. I've heard expectations described as premeditated resentments before. It's one of my favorite sayings. Now, that's an interesting thing about a plan and purpose because on the one hand, having a structure or a plan that, that kind of projects out can be very comforting to people on some yeah. level. Like, so for example, like something that, that some people may not know is that you and I had actually recorded this interview originally and I completely fucked up and somehow the tape got lost. And so I have this plan of this thing that I want to do, right? I want to do this podcast and this platform. And that comes with certain things. You know, I want to be interviewing people like yourself. I was so excited about it. Your publicists are great and it's, everything was fantastic. And so when it was lost, that violated my expectations. I was freaking out. I mean, for a day until like I found out that you guys rescheduled. Probably all weekend, I was like kicking myself for this. And so on the one hand, like I like having the idea that I'm going for something. But on the other hand, it was, it was horrible. And so right. I'm kind of curious from your perspective, how do you balance the idea of like having purpose, having something that matters to you without getting so caught up in it? Like at least I unfortunately did. Right. I'm not saying not to plan <laughs> because if you don't plan, you're screwed. Is it five P's? Proper preparation prevents piss poor performance. I didn't even count the number of P's. You know? It's a good number of P's, whatever it is. Yeah, whatever it was. So having a plan is a good thing. Having a structure of, of some sort in, in your life, even having routine is a good thing in your life. You know, healthy activities that are routine for for instance, I haven't been able to surf a lot due to the quarantine. Now that the beaches are reopened, though, I can go out and surf. So I was pretty bummed about that for a little while and sat on my pity pot. Oh, I plan to go surfing now, you know, because I was, I was supposed to be off tour. Turns out I'm off tour for a while now. So I adapted, though, and started lifting weights and working out. I, I'm not a gym dude at all, but I realized that I have to stay 
have to keep my physical being healthy, you know, because your, your body, your, the health of your body directly relates to the health of your mind, you know, that's scientifically proven. So for me, having balance on planning and, and just, uh, just going with it is, it's a matter of trying to find the sort of common sense approach to what I'm going to do for the next week or so. And also just being open to change. I mean, it's, it's a matter of practice. It doesn't happen automatically. It's a matter of practice because I've had the inverse, you know, I've overplanned and then I've had the inverse where I've had no plan whatsoever. And that didn't work out too well for me either. So I think just through going through life and practicing and reminding myself that nothing is static when bad things happen and, and looking at the situation as it is and trying to be subjective about it. Like I'm not belittling your experience here, but the podcast crashed, right? Belittle away. I, I need my experience to be belittled. Please. Yeah. You did not contract leprosy. You know, <laughs> it honestly, it, it honestly felt like it was some like digital version of that at the time. Yes. Right. Not, yeah. to, okay. not to, not to belittle leprosy. Cause I, had yeah, that. you got, you got the digital leprosy. It's a matter of trying to keep those things in perspective. And for me, one thing that is help keep things in perspective and, and help that balance is also it's sporadic, but my life goes a lot better when I do it is trying to maintain a meditation practice. That helps me stay in the moment and recognize the reality of the situation I'm in. Because I get in trouble with what we call future tripping. If I start existing in the future, you know, I catastrophize things very quickly. Any sort of small thing I do that I think is not good enough or I'm not being smart enough, uh, I can catastrophize that and sets off the butterfly effect, this chain of events that will quickly end with a nuclear Armageddon for the entire planet because I forgot to pay my internet bill on time or whatever. You know, I'll guilt trip the crap out of myself. So I start living in the future and things get really bad, man, when I go up in my head and just embrace those thoughts and, and follow those thoughts to their entirely illogical end, but I'm really good at doing that. So for me, trying to maintain a meditation practice of sorts has helped me realize and recognize the fact that thoughts are just thoughts. They're just thoughts. And uh, we, we're comprised of our thoughts, yes, our, our personalities and all that stuff. And, and as a man thinketh, thus he is, but they're just thoughts. I am not my thoughts. I am not my emotions. And I have to recognize that. One of the things that can happen for people is that there are some things that can throw someone off of that path, right? So people can get into addiction or if there's a tragedy or things like, you know, we have, we have this coronavirus and these issues that are happening with justice and all this kind of stuff, right? So those are things that are in theory bad. And we can talk about how those can throw people off. But then there's sometimes things that are actually good, right? So for example, like you started out from a punk rock place, yes. right? But once you become Lamb of God, capitals all the way through, there could become a, a risk at that point of not just being able to stay in the moment because it's realistic to look ahead at these amazing things that could happen. 
Right. You know what I mean? It's a little bit, it's, it's, it's not as realistic if, if you're playing, a, you know, 50 people at CB's, but if you're playing to 50,000 people at a, at a major festival, all of a sudden it becomes the kind of thing where, well, I might start dreaming a little bit. You know right. what I mean? And I'm kind of curious for you how you dealt with that transition because most people wouldn't think, they, most people would just be like, well, this is just a good thing. But a lot of people, I think, have problems with that. Well, I will say this, it's imperative for me, and I believe it's imperative for the other dudes in my band, we've talked about that, to not really pay too much attention or, or believe any hype there may be around our band. Because I will admit, man, when you step on a stage in front of 100,000 people like I've done before, and a whole lot of them are singing those words back at you. It's a huge ego boost. Huge, you know? For me, I try and look at that as instead of like, oh, look how great I am. Look at all these people singing these words. I try and look at that as an extraordinary thing that I need to remain grateful for. And also, as not just, I was talking to someone about this the other day, like when we play a show, yes, my band is on stage and yes, the audience is, is in their area, but I don't really think of it as the Lamb, Lamb of God show, my show. I think of it as our show because it is a massive exchange of energy between band and audience. And it is a, a form of sonic communication that is almost indescribable unless you've done it, you know, at least on my part but I've been to many shows. So I think for my band, one thing that helped us, or at least I can only speak for myself, is, is that when we started playing, we started playing just because we love music, not because I ever thought I'd be on tour with Metallica or something or tour the world. We did it just because we love music and things happened slowly for us. You know, we were a band for 10 years before we were actually, I, I sometimes say, get to, but most of the time I say forced to quit our day jobs because we had to make a decision, you know, are we going to do this or are we going to work a day job and then tour when we can and hopefully just do it for the love of the music. And it was a very frightening thing, quitting my day job. Cause I've had a job since I was of some sort, since I was 14 years old, I don't come from money or anything. So the sort of lengthy process of us Getting to the point after 10 years of like, okay, we, we got to commit and quit our day jobs and actually give this thing a shot. There were no guarantees. It was scary. And we didn't immediately go on tour with Metallica. We didn't immediately play Download Fest in front of a, a bunch of people. It was incremental, very gradual. You know, the shows got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that helped us a lot. And so... I and the other dudes in the band have just tried to remain cognizant of the fact that we're just five dudes from Richmond, Virginia. Well, our drummer's from LA, but we're, we're just five dudes, four dudes from Richmond, Virginia. And it's pretty astounding to me that we are where we are. Sometimes I wake up and I'm like, how in the hell did this happen? And I try and remain grateful for that. I think if I start paying attention to reviews and stuff or, or whatever they'd say how awesome our record or, or this show was or whatever it's nice to see that stuff but i start paying too much attention to that then i start believing my my shit doesn't stink and it stinks you know it definitely stinks 
So, well, it's interesting that you phrase it that way because one of the things that I find that happens with people is that the the big positive, right, the all in the all or none spectrum, if you will, it's so seductive, right? Because it's like, what are what are we doing in some ways other than like looking for ways to feel good about ourselves, you know, depending right. on who you are. But what happens is that it also subtly activates the none, right? So even that thing that you just said right now, it's like, you know, my shit don't stink because my shit fucking stinks, right? It almost seems for a lot of people that I know and people even that I work with that as soon as you start getting those, those real big ego type thoughts, the uber negative ones are just lurking. It almost seems like it's just, it's just like waiting to go at that point. And then you never know when it's going to get tripped up. You know, I mean, you get 10 good reviews and you're like, wow, wow, wow. And then all of a sudden one bad one, you're like, I'm the biggest piece of shit on the planet. And people don't know why. But I, I'm kind of curious if you've found that that gets activated, like you're more vulnerable to those negative thoughts when you're having those more intense highs. Yeah, I would say so. And, and not just more of the intense highs. I mean, I view everything through the lens of my alcoholism, right? And I've been sober almost 10 years now. But a bunch of us, I, I hang around a bunch of sober people who are alcoholics. A term that you hear thrown around a lot to describe us amongst us, amongst us sober alcoholics is we are egomaniacs with an inferiority complex. And we also talk about the fact that, you know, I could be, I could walk into a room and there will be a hundred people in that room and 99 of them will say, Randy, good to see you, bro. But one person, will just be look at me and go, oh, fuck that guy. Who's the one guy, who's I'm going to pay attention to? The one guy who gives me the stink eye. There's 99 people there who are stoked to see me, but the one guy who gives me the stink eye, I'm going to obsess over that or whatever. So for me, everything is a learning process, you know, and I, and I try and learn and stay mentally, emotionally, and spiritually green, because if I'm green, it means I'm growing. Once you stop growing, you're dead. So I have to learn to give myself a break as well. You know, when I do do, when negative things do happen, I have to realize, you know, I'm not Attila the Hun. I'm not Hitler. I, I may have fucked up and done something stupid or said something idiotic or unintentionally hurt someone's feeling, but, but I am a human being you know, and as such, I am infinitely fallible. You mentioned that. I, I also, for years when I was drinking, really beat myself up. That's one thing that in a, in a weird way has kind of served me well as far as being a, an artist. I'm not really that concerned about what other people think about me because I have been so good at kicking my own ass over the years that what other people think of me doesn't really affect me that much in general, at least these days. It used to, you know. It's just really a matter of just at times giving myself a break and understanding that I'm going to have emotions, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, and I need to recognize those emotions, not try and stuff them down like I did for years and years and years with drugs and alcohol. I need to recognize them and I hate to use the term honor because it sounds kind of hokey. I will honor my emotions, but I, I need to recognize them. I need to embrace them for what they are and move through them. You know, yeah. This this thing that you talk about, though, is it's a very it's a very tricky thing because I hear what you're saying, and on a personal level, it's probably so much healthier to 
not connect to that negativity, right? To not go into that depth. Yes. And yet, part of, you know, as an example, like I like to talk to artists or people who are creative musicians because for me, something that is just so reassuring is talking with people who kind of understand the depths of darkness. Right. You know, like it makes my darkness feel a little less weird. Right. And so it's, it's this, I think there's this interesting thing though. How do you have that empathy for people? How do you have that gravitas if you haven't gone through that? You know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you write the intensity of the songs, right? A lot of people put on a Lamb of God album simply so that they can sit there and be like, okay, there's at least one person or a few people who get me. And I'm not going to kill myself tonight because of that. Right. Which, which may sound dramatic, but I, I actually think is, is the reality for some people. And so like, how do, you, how do you balance that knowing that this very thing that's not particularly healthy for you has historically been the thing that people need from you so that they feel better? Man, that's an interesting question. It's tough, you know, because there is a misconception that the greatest art comes from being tortured. I think that's a huge misconception. But in my case and with my band, most of the things I sing about and write about are not very happy things, you know? I'm not writing a song about how a guy had a great day in Boise, Idaho this afternoon, (laughs) you know? I'm writing about things that, that disturb me that I feel passionately about. And I feel that my band with Lamb of God, that's the venue for that to be done. And as I get older, I will be honest, it gets a little bit harder emotionally as I become, try to become a, a more well-adjusted person emotionally. It becomes a little bit harder to, to go into those dark places. However, you mentioned someone saying, I'm going to listen to this and I'm not going to kill myself. I have been told that very thing you just described by hundreds and hundreds of people, man. And that is the biggest compliment that I can be given as a musician is that I was in a really bad place and your music helped me get through it. So when I have a difficult time doing these things, I think about that and I'm like, okay, this is worth it. And I think about my purpose in life. I was talking to a friend about my purpose in life the other day. And I thought, maybe I'm just here to help people in whatever shape or form I'm supposed to be. Not to be a musician, not to do this, not to do that, but maybe I could just look at my purpose in life as as just a way to help people in general. And it's really broad, you know, and I don't know what shape or form it will take at all times, but it's a nice, gives me a nice feeling to think like that. Well, and it's it's interesting when you use the concept then of protean, because if if you're if you're not protean and you're like, Okay. And I, I think this is something that we as fans, unfortunately, do with artists that's horrible. Like, we don't let artists grow. We don't recognize that this fantastic thing that they did, like a song that we enjoy or an album that we really like, came from this whole kind of chaotic protean process, right? We just sort of look at it and we're like, okay, we like that. Do that. Bark for us. You know what I mean? Dance for us. And I, I could see how that would be very frustrating. I think that one of the things... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a circus monkey. I've told people that before too. <laughs> right. And it's like, so on the one hand though, if you feel 
right? Like you get locked in, in a, let's say, call it a non-protean way. You could feed into that and you could sort of say like, well, I'm going to start feeling bad about myself because the only way that I can heal, right? The only way that I can help people is just to do this one thing. But if you open it up a little bit, there starts to become other options. So as an example, it's like, what better way of helping people than to show that growth process. Like, you know, it's like if you are organically just as deeply disturbed 20 years from now as you were 20 years ago, then it's like, okay, that's fine. That's, that's you. That's your authentic you. But if you have grown and are in a better place because of that, I think a lot of people think, oh, it's not edgy. It's not whatever. It's like, yeah, but look, look a little bit behind the curtain. Like this is, this is a guy who was in a dark place who's now in a better place. That's, that's another way of helping people. Right. right, just showing that you're going to be oh oh I I love him because he's tortured, but he's going to be tortured his whole life is fantastic if that's who you are. But there's another path that I feel like we as fans often don't let artists go down, which is that like, but what if you're actually legitimately getting better? Is is there no room for that? Because then what's the whole point? Ah oh, man, and you and you hear it, you know. Some people will be like, oh, I liked them all better when they were unhappy and fucked up when a band puts out a new record after they've, they've gotten their lives together or whatever. To me, that's just not recognizing the humanity of a person, you know? And that's really unacceptable to me. That's something I really try and stay cognizant of. Like, for example, and I think a lesson that taught me this is learning about the humanity of my parents, right? Because when you're growing up, your parents are this other thing. They're not even human. They're the things that, that take care of you. And then, you know, I'm lucky. I had really good parents, but they have their flaws just like any other human. So as I get older, I'm learning to see their humanity more and more and more and realize that they're not this sort of thing that I put on this pedestal who, when they do something I don't like, I become shockingly upset over because they let me down, you know, they're human beings and uh, I have to accept that. And that's with musicians and, and, and stuff. I mean, my situation is a little bit different because I've met so many musicians and famous people over the years. I've learned really not to put any sort of um, anyone on a pedestal. And you hear the saying, don't meet your heroes. They might disappoint you. You know, I've heard that said a lot. I don't agree with that. I think how about if you look, up to someone and you truly look up to them, accept their humanity. Go ahead and do that. You know, and that quite frankly is one of the biggest reasons why I do these interviews. We lose so much of the experience. It's like everyone's like, oh, Prince, Prince died. And everybody was like so sad about that. But it's like, there's like a weird kid right now who's about 13 years old in Minnesota somewhere who plays 75 instruments and dresses differently than everyone and is getting the shit kicked out of him right now yeah. because we didn't learn a damn thing about Prince. You know, and, and for me, I think one of the greatest things about the hardcore movement was it's not kill your rock stars. It's like know your rock stars. Because yeah. and I feel like that's they're selling the merchandise after the show. <laughs> yeah, because well well and I think that that's one of the reasons why if you look at a lot of current society, like things like, you know, when people talk about DIY culture, when people talk about community, when people talk about this idea that there's a decentralized society. You know, you're talking about being from Richmond. It's like, you know, there was a time where if you weren't from New York or LA and maybe Chicago, nobody would give a shit about you. But all of a sudden, it's like you could be somebody from all these different places. And, and that, yeah. I think what you're hitting on is like, 
you know, exactly why I like to, to talk with people because it's like, I can learn a certain amount about you from your music and that's great. And if, all, if that's all it winds up being, that's fantastic. But, you know, it's like, I kind of want people to know more because then they can get more out of it. It's like, if you did something great creatively and you, you overcame things in your life, I would think that people would want to know more about that so that they could learn from it. Right. I think in any sort of situation where you're, you follow someone and, and I tend to do this with authors, not so much with musicians, but with writers, I have a conception about these people and I love reading books about writers, biographies of their lives and so forth, right? The more I learn about a person and then if I meet them, I find that my conception of that person is vastly different than the reality of that person. I mean, they may be well known for maintaining social niceties or maybe they're known for being a bastard. I don't know, but you meet the person and they're there and you interact with them then you're experiencing the reality of that person. And I, and I think for me, one thing that's, that's kind of helped is just not having these sort of preconceived sort of notions about people because, you know, I've met some of the musicians, I'm friends with all the, almost all the musicians in the bands that I grew up listening to in high school, all of them. I've wound up singing for some of them. I meet them and they're just humans. They're just totally human beings. They aren't this sort of, cartoon character, punk rock, hardcore guy or girl, they're human, you know? And and I, I really try to stay as I get older, more and more cognizant of the fact that everyone is a human. And one of the things that you're talking about, I think, again, in that context of being protean, the way that a protean life works is if you, you get the gratification from the process, from the interactions. It's not so much like, oh, am I going to, Am I going to write a song that's going to be a hit or that's going to get a good review? It's just like, I just, I just want to get into writing the song. You know, right. it's like, and what I, what I always try to encourage the people with whom I work is just like, always like you could, you could have loftier things that you kind of know are out there, but always connect to that process because the process never fails. I mean, it might, it might fail in terms of like, you learn something that you no longer like. If, if you don't stick with the process, I think people can just get lost. Yeah, for sure. For me, it's about open-mindedness, really, in everything. Because, I don't know, man, you can't receive a gift with a closed fist, you know? If you're clenched up and tight, you know, you got you to gotta be open to things. And, and that's difficult. And it requires a lot of self-examination, which can be very uncomfortable at times. I don't know. It's just something I try and do more and more as I get older, though. I look at myself and my motives for, for thinking and doing things. And, try and make sure everything is correct according to the calibration of my moral compass. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I'm kind of curious your opinion of this is that, you know, when people start using in whatever their addiction is, a lot of people feel like all addiction comes from this dark place, you know, but I think you've said in the media and a lot of people that I've talked with for sure say, no, it doesn't come from there. In fact, it often comes from wanting to be more connected to maybe the people around you because they're doing it or like it, it relaxes you a little bit and it, it kind of works for a while. Like you're a little bit more open to experience. And then I think, and you described this in, in an article and then all of a sudden it slams shut. It's like that yeah. fist, you it's like it goes from an open hand to a closed fist. I'm, I'm kind of curious, just your perspective on that, like what you went through with that addictive process. Right. Well, I, I hang out with a lot of sober people, you know, and also a lot of not sober people. 
But some of the sober people I know that they'll describe when they they started drinking, there was this magic moment as soon as they took the first drink. And from there, it was just like plummeting downhill into the abyss of addiction. And, and there was nothing else they ever wanted to do other than just drink or do whatever drugs it was they were doing. And some people, for them, that was a way they, they immediately used it to cope with their issues. They were like, ah, oh, finally, I feel human or whatever. And there was a, an aspect of that for me, I suppose, when I drank, it definitely made me feel as if I belonged a bit more because I've always felt like an outsider. But for me, it, it wasn't like that. And for a lot of people I know, when I started drinking, because I did a lot of drugs, but I never classified myself as a drug addict. Alcohol is my one true love. Alcohol is a drug, obviously, but I'm a pure, respectable alcoholic. You know? <laughs> when I started drinking, I had a good time for quite some while. And I was drinking for the enjoyment, for the social aspect of it, for the enjoyment of the sensation, the loosening of inhibitions from time to time. And it's a great way to meet girls in a bar or a party or whatever. But it wasn't automatically, when I took a drink, it didn't automatically ruin my life. It took a while. And I did have some good times drinking, some really good times. But at a certain point, and I've tried to really pinpoint when it is, sometimes I think about it when this happened, but I'm, I'm not sure. I believe it was sometime in my 20s. At some point during my drinking, I crossed this invisible line where drinking shifted from something I did to what I did. <laughs> at first, it was like, oh, we're going to have a good time at the party this weekend and, you know, we'll socialize, drink a couple of beers or whatever. It turned into, I drink. That's it. I had to have alcohol to do anything. In the end, I had to have alcohol to eat in the morning. I had to drink a beer before I could put food in me, you know, so that's pretty dark. But as I said, it, it didn't start off that way. So, I know people who it did start off that way. That's a baffling component about alcoholism is it's the variations of the way it manifests in people, you know, and the time spans. And I've met people who never really drank until they were in their 40s. And then boom, literally they drank their whole life away and they're homeless. You know, these are successful people. So it's it's a baffling, it's a baffling malady and one that you kind of have to take on a case-to-case basis, I suppose. There's no empirical standard of how one becomes a, an alcoholic. That being said, there's commonalities amongst all people. No matter how you get there, once you're there, you're there. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things I find with the people with whom I work is that any kind of substance, it starts out with the goal of being more protean, if we're going to use that term. You know, it's like, I, I want to be a little less anxious. I want to be a little looser. I want to open my mind a little bit. And then what winds up happening is that whether it's emotionally or in terms of their life, it's like you said, it becomes particularly not protean. It's no longer a yeah. thing that they do. It's a thing that they are. It is an immutable aspect of your life at a, after a certain point. And that was certainly the case for me. And it clouds your perspective, you know, addiction to any substance. So for me, it was perfectly normal that I needed to bring beer to the movies. You know, I, I 
had to have a couple of tall boy cans in my vest and a cough when I cracked it in the movie theater. So like I justified all that to myself. Oh, I'm going to the movies to have a good time. Normal people don't need to bring beer to the movies. They can sit through an hour and a half, two hour movie without drinking a beer. My life was arranged around where alcohol would be. It really was. I took that into consideration in almost every activity I pursued. And that's no way to, to really live your life. <laughs> it's being chained to a substance. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Now that we're talking about it, it's occurring to me that I think all issues that are classified as mental health disorders or illnesses, whatever term you want to use, that lack of protean concept is really what binds them all. It, 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 things move from being a dynamic system into being a fixed pattern you know, whether it's depression or anxiety or an eating issue, substance issue, and that that really kind of defines what it is to have a quote unquote disorder, even though I don't always like using that term. Yeah. Well, I think that you're talking about that when you're deep in any sort of addiction or or whatever, after a while, at least for me, the disorder defines you. That's the thing is, um, I, Obviously, while in active alcoholism, did a lot of things professionally. I toured the world and did some writing and, and some other things, but I was an alcoholic. <laughs> and I view everything today through the lens of my alcoholism, every single aspect of my life in a much different way than I did when I was in act- active alcoholism. But I do view everything through the lens of my alcoholism and how I dealt with my alcoholism is how I tend to deal with problems that I, that arise because I mean, I've had some pretty crappy stuff go down in my life. You know, I I went to prison and I went there sober. And while I was there, I remembered thinking, you know, I would rather sit in this prison than drink again. And that may sound crazy to some people, but for me, when I drank, it defined me and there was no assured outcome to anything in my life other than I was going to drink. And that left me with not many options because when I drank, I tended to do crazy things, some reprehensible things from time to time. I wasn't the Genghis Khan of alcoholism or anything, but I wasn't exactly a nice guy sometimes. So once I got out of that, when, when that alcoholism no longer defined and controlled me, it's unacceptable for me to go back to that because I was a prisoner. And even, so saying even in prison, I was sober. So I felt in an odd way more free in prison than I, than I had been when I was out on the streets drinking. That's how, how strongly it defined me. And, and when I got sober, I had to deal with everything moment to moment, day to day, one minute at a time, one day at a time. And I stayed focused staying in the now to sound like some sort of pseudo Eastern mystic or whatever. But (laughs) this very moment is all that exists. So we have to take care of it. Um, So when I was locked up, I was like, okay, I have to stay in my present reality right now. I can't start future tripping, worrying about I'm going to be in here for five to 10 years. I'm never going to see some of my friends again or my grandmother or whatever. I just have to stay in this very moment. And I learned that from getting sober. I learned that through the process of getting sober, not uh, looking too far ahead in the future, thinking about unknowable outcomes over which I had zero control. 
zero control. So it helped me greatly. And when things are bad in my life now from time to time or I'm in a difficult situation, I, I always think, well, at least I'm not drunk. I mean, perhaps that's a pretty low bar to set for success for the day. But for, for me, sometimes it's like, at least I'm not drunk today. And, and that's okay. Because I have a chance of things getting better. When I was drinking, there was no chance of anything happening other than me drinking. And who knows where that would lead to. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things that you're talking about with the idea of being in the moment is something that I think particularly or potentially, I should say, protects people from hopelessness because future orientation is very much a double-edged sword in the sense that if you're looking at something that you think is going to be amazing, it can get you through difficult times. You know, even people who think to themselves like, oh, I'll, I'll be in heaven at some point, you right. know, that, that can be it. But if you're convinced that that future is fixed and stuck, then the hopelessness really sets in. But from what I'm hearing from you, if you, if you keep being in that moment minute by minute, to a certain extent, that has the potential of always getting you through because all you have to do is focus on that moment. Yes. That is not to say that we have to abandon any long-term plans for our lives, that we should not prepare and think about what we're going to do with our lives. But for me, staying in the moment and, and being cognizant of the things I have to be grateful for right now, rather than resentful of the things I don't have, is very important. And I'm seeing some of my friends and, and a lot of people very much struggling with that right now with this coronavirus situation. A dear friend of mine is, I've been trying to talk to her about some things and, and she's like, the things I was doing have all been taken away from me. You know, everything's closed. And I'm like, yes, this is true, but we have to look at what's going on right now. Cause she's a really good street photographer and she's it's not the same for me now. I can't go out and I'm not shooting people's faces. She got a lot of, a lot of fulfillment out of that. And I'm like, this is true, but maybe you need to shift your perception on how you're going to photograph people right now and make a, make a record of this time. Cause it's important. And in my own life, I struggle with this too. I'm not trying to say I'm I'm some wise person giving advice. I was just talking to a friend of mine and trying to talk to her about her problems. But for me, like right now, I'm supposed to be on tour. We put out a new record last month. Every other time we've done that, we've gotten to go out on tour. We've gotten to support it. I've gotten to play in front of crowds. I've gotten to see the world. I've gotten to make my wages, you know, and that's not happening right now. So I've felt... Uh, as if there's been a super important component of my life just removed, snatched away from me. And I've fallen into the pit of self-pity from time to time. We all like to get on our pity pot. But I'm very conscientiously, when I get that way, very conscientiously kicking against that and trying to figure out what I can do in the interim until we go back on tour. How am I going to use this time wisely? And I struggle with that just like everybody else. But I'm trying to figure it out rather than just sitting here being upset over the fact that I can't go on tour. Yeah, it, it sounds like what you're doing to some degree is is you're you're disconnecting the broader sense of purpose from the particular behavioral act. You know, like what you're saying to your friend is that like, well, just because you can't take this type of photo, which is understandable, you know, why that would be upsetting, it doesn't mean that you're no longer a photographer. 
that's hard for some people because I think we tend to identify our self-concept of our purpose so much in, in behavioral terms. For sure. And that's one, one reason that since I've gotten sober, I've tried to broaden my artistic output to a lot of different outlets because I know some people who, I won't say names, who, who define themselves by, I am this dude in this band. And that is their identity. And right now that's been taken away and there's some miserable people, <laughs> you know? So for me, I'm trying to broaden the way I can incorporate the artistic process within my life and what I can do during this time. And, you know, I, I understand my friend as a photographer because, I mean, basically I'm a street photographer and what I love is shooting people. I love shooting people in these moments. That's one reason why the cell phone has driven me crazy in urban environments because you have the people are walking along looking at their cell phone. I'm like, that's lame. Put that down. Smoke a cigarette. That looks way cooler <laughs> or whatever. Even though cigarettes are horrible for you. I'm not endorsing smoking, but do something. Get an argument with the, with the newspaper vendor. Stop just being absorbed in your phone. But I certainly understand her being upset with the fact that she can't get these faces. But it is, I think it's limiting to think I just do this one thing, as you're saying. And I've been doing a lot of photography lately, and I've been connecting with other local photographers. And, and we've been talking about perhaps doing a collective and, and getting together to support each other's work. And it's been good for me to go out and shoot with other people and view their work and get some outside perspective, I guess, on a lot of the same things we're all shooting. So today I went earlier, I just went and shot this old building, what's left of a place called Sophie's Alley. And I found out about it from a photo exhibit that's in the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts right now. And it's, it's behind the 2200 East Block of, of, of Main Street. And apparently during the Depression, this was one of like the most dangerous places in Richmond. It's where all these people would hang out, just thugs and gangsters and play cards. And you know, it was during the Depression, so nobody had any money. It was a really dangerous place. And I'm not really an architect photographer guy. I'm like a, a human guy. I like to shoot humans. But I saw these photos from the 30s of this these people in this alley hanging out. And I was like, I'm going to go see if it's still there, you know? And I just walked over there behind there and most of it's gone, but there's one little segment of it that you can tell the buildings are still there. And I had a good time like framing the photos. I mean, the buildings are screwed up too. There's moss growing all over it and vines and all this other stuff. I had a really good time trying to like sort of frame this photo and, and change the way I approached photography for today. Cause I don't often shoot buildings. I shoot people and I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone for a little bit, you know? Yeah. This thing you're saying, I mean, I, I love it just from a conceptual perspective because I feel like, again, it's that basic concept of if, if the world says, look at me straight on, just looking at it from a slightly different angle opens up everything. And what I love about what you're saying is that you're doing it with people. I feel like one of the things I'm hearing from a lot of people right now is that they feel as though their social lives are set in stone and they're withering, which isn't really the best metaphor for stone. But I think the lesson from what you're saying is very important. You know, there's people out there who want to connect. There's yeah. always people who want to connect. Like, you know, social life is very dynamic. And I think for people who are sitting there being like, I can't see my friends, it's like, 
there are people out there who want to do stuff in whatever capacity. I feel like this is a great example of it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, right now, certainly we have to be cognizant of this coronavirus pandemic that's going on and we have to be precautious, but I'm not cramming into a dark room with a bunch of people. I'm outside and people keep their distance and wear a mask and, and we have, you know, good discussions. And some of these people I met, for instance, there was this photographer who lives here now, who he's my favorite Richmond photographer now. I just discovered him like a month ago. His work is amazing. He's from St. Thomas, the U.S. Virgin Islands. He lives here now. And he's also a musician. He's a singer as well. Uh, he sings with the band Thievery Corporation out of D.C. I don't know if you ever heard of them. They're like a weird kind of world music collective. But I, I started just seeing his photos on Instagram and following him and giving him a comment. And then he's like, oh, I saw you shooting here. And, and I'm like, well, why didn't you come say hello? And he's like, I'll do it next time. And then we've been out shooting, you know, and it's it's been like, I didn't know this guy two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. And, and it's just been really neat to to be open, to go out and, and photograph things. And particularly as a photographer right now, particularly in my city, the former capital of the Confederacy, there's a lot of protests. There's a lot of demonstrations around the Confederate memorials on Monument Avenue, a lot of activism as it were. So it's been, it's really cool to go out and document this stuff. And some of the local museums are, are acquiring a bunch of our photos as part of the historical record. So that, you know, in 10, 20 years, People, researchers can come and, and they'll have visual context for what happened here. So I'm shooting with purpose at times too now. Actually, I have been since the beginning of all this stuff. It's like I really want to capture this time because, yes, it's, a, it's an imposition on normal life. But it's also, for me, it's interesting to view this through the artistic lens and see how things differ and try and capture that. So it's a bit of an opportunity. No, I'm not glad that all this stuff is happening, <laughs> you know, and that people are, are angry and that there's racial injustice and, and a pandemic and the economy is crashing. I'm obviously, I'm not excited about that. I'm not happy. That's not what I'm about, but it is a good opportunity to catch an important time in history for me. Do you notice a difference in the process by which you make music versus figuring out and taking the photographs? Oh yes, absolutely. When I write music, when I write lyrics, when I write prose, whether it be a book or, or an article for a magazine, I'm being very, very, very subjective. And I am trying very much to put forth my belief, my statement on whatever I'm addressing in that body of work that I'm creating. So it's super, super subjective. I'm not trying to, like, when I, when I write lyrics or whatever, I'm not trying to get other people's opinion <laughs> about what I'm writing. This is my opinion, and you can either listen to it or not. That's the nature of lyrics and, and art. So with photography, although no photographer can pretend to be objective, really, because our, our biases Emotional subjectivity comes through in our choice of subject matter, the way we frame things, the way we bring attention to the subject of a photograph. Everything is, is subjective to a degree, but it's also for me as what I would call a street photographer, it's a lot more objective because I am not a studio photographer. I do not create situations that I do not set up lights or whatever. What I do is I go out on the street most of the time with zero objective whatsoever, zero idea of what I'm going to see. And 
I look around and I see what the world provides and I try to capture things within that world that I find beautiful. So I'm not creating anything. And for me, it's a way to shut down at least part of that subjectivity, that, that artistic subjectivity that I, I use in my lyrics and my writing and just kind of, it takes my ego out of it a bit, you know, because I, I didn't, I make the photograph, but I did not make this situation. I did not create it from the ground up. I'm just capturing it. And it, it opens me to the world when I go out and shoot. I have to remain open because if I'm thinking, for instance, if I was like, today, I'm going to go out and get a photo of, of Dr. Mike. Obviously, that's not going to happen because you're wherever you are and I'm over here. So if I have this idea that I'm going to get this photo of you and that's what I want, I'm going to be nothing but disappointed and resentful. So well, just, just, to, just to clarify, I would be so psyched if you actually wanted to do that at some point. I am worried that you'd be disappointed by the photograph itself, but I'm so psyched that you actually want to do it. That would be fantastic. I'm sure. Just putting it out there. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to shoot you one day. Absolutely. I love shooting people I know too, but I don't have specific ideas about what I'm going to capture when I go out. Uh, I can't because I don't know what's going to happen. It's, it's, um, it's an unknowable situation. And sometimes I get great things and sometimes I get crap, you know, but it really forces me to be open in, in more ways than one. And it really literally forces me to keep my eyes open and pay more attention to my surroundings in order to find these things. Now, can I pivot for a moment? Because actually the thing that you just said about photography reminded me of one of the lyrics I picked up on the new album. So it's, it's a little bit <laughs> mixing, a mixing artistic expression here for a sure. moment. I was really, the, the memento mori, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, yes. the wake up and the dream imagery. Because it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that, you know, because when I, when I read the lyrics, I, it actually gives me images. And so I was kind of curious for you when you write, if there are images in your head as well, and what the concept of what that song, at least if you felt comfortable, like kind of what you were thinking about with that particular song, because that, yeah. that definitely hit me a little bit. Yeah, well, that song is about specifically about the way that we in this modern society oftentimes, oftentimes experience life through a digitally filtered representation of reality through these cell phones, right? And around the time of our fearless leader being elected, I was really paying a lot of attention to the news. And I still do pay attention to the news. Not as much, thank God. But I was, I'd check CNN, I'd check Fox, I'd check the BBC, I'd check Al Jazeera, MSNBC, I'd check independent outlets. And I was looking at different versions of the same news story. And I was trying to find some median like level of objective truth in the middle of all this bias that, that everybody's throwing out there. And it was driving me insane. And also most of the news is bad news because bad news sells advertising, right? Good news doesn't get your corporate sponsors as much because people aren't as glued to it. There's something psychologically, something within our psyche that makes us keep looking at this stuff, like wiggling with a loose tooth or something, you know? And I was really, it was 
seriously affecting my mental and emotional health and probably my physical health because I was just sitting there too much, not exercising enough. And I was looking at the phone all this time and I got to a point where I was like, I have to step away from this. I'm going nuts. And I put like a VPN blocker on my phone so that I could only use the internet like for 30 minutes every day. I did that for a month. And that way I wouldn't be constantly refreshing these news stories. And I found that my emotional and mental well-being improved measurably, greatly, fairly swiftly since I wasn't getting that dopamine hit from just hitting the refresh button. While there are horrible things in the world going on and, and there are various social issues that need a lot of attention and we should pay attention to these things and move forward. If I'm wrapped up so much in looking at this digitally filtered representative representation of reality, I'm not seeing the good things that still exist in reality because there is balance. I mean, and I always use this example. Yes, there's a coronavirus pandemic right now, and it's depressing and people are dying. And here in America, it's not being handled very well. But at the same time, somewhere in America at this very moment, a mother just had her child and is looking at her, her firstborn child for the first time and is experiencing that indescribable joy. You know, that is magic. That is, that is beauty. And that's happening right now as we speak. Somewhere a young couple has fallen in love and they're having their first kiss right now. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. All of these things are occurring at the same time, concurrently with all the bad things. So I have to pay some attention to the good things. And I can't do that if I'm lost in this morass of bad news. So I have to wake up. And that song is, I didn't write it to be pedantic. I wrote that song for me, yelling at me, like, wake up, dummy, you know, take a look around you. The sky is not falling. Things may be crappy in some ways, but the world is not ending yet. And it's interesting because now that I'm thinking about it, when we're talking about that addiction concept, people go to the internet because in theory, it gives them that freedom. You know, in theory, the world is your oyster, which, which it can be if you use it correctly. But what winds up happening then is that, yes, the world is your oyster, but the internet itself is now your chain. Now it's your shackle to some extent. And with, when you think about how then like with the way that with Facebook or whatever, they, they send you the same kinds of things that, you're, that you've been looking at in the past because they think you're going to click on it. All of a sudden, you could see how what started out as a, hey, I want to see what's going on in the world to I'm just seeing over and over and over and over again, the same things that are happening in the world. Like I thought I was free. I thought I was open. And now I'm just kind of locked in. You know, I'm going for that dopamine hit, but now I'm addicted to dopamine. Now, I don't know if that's technically a thing, but it's certainly a, a, it's certainly people get compulsive about it. Sure. You know? it, it works on those receptors in the brain and it's like, boom, and it's quick. But just like any drug, you have to keep doing that in order to get that. It, it fades. And that you said, interesting thing, the, another thing to be cognizant of, and, and this is one thing that worries me for the younger generation who are raised with these things the pocket Jesus, as I call it, the cell phone, has everything you need, it's your savior. The world is your oyster. For, for instance, I've traveled the world. I've been to every continent except for Antarctica. I can tell you there is a vast, vast difference 
from looking at pictures of, let's say, the Highlands in Scotland or watching a documentary about the Highlands in Scotland. You can learn some things. There's a vast difference between viewing that on a screen and being there. It is unbelievable. I mean, you know, that's a plug for the Highlands. It's, it's an amazing place, you know, but it, there's a, it's not comparable. So for me, I'm not a Luddite. I believe the internet is a valuable tool, but I think it should be used as the tool, like a means to an end rather than the end itself. And, and I feel that's kind of in a lot of ways what it's become, you know, with social media and so forth, people chasing likes and, and building their profiles and all that other stuff. And it's like, to what end? What does that get you in the end? A bazillion Instagram followers. What does that get you? I mean, how does that translate into something of value within your life other than you're popular on cell phones? <laughs> I have mixed feelings about it because I think to an extent, the way I, I try to say it with the people that I work with is it's okay to be popular there. Like it's another way to connect with people. You know, it's the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, like if you're home at night, back when I was growing up, there wasn't much you could do. You know, we had like eight channels and they all went off at like whatever time and you couldn't really call anybody per se. But now there's kind of a world out there and that's really cool if you use it like that. But if it becomes the only thing and it becomes the entire focus, then you do have to wonder, yeah, what, you know, what are you doing? Yes. When I, when I lay down on my deathbed and I I do hope I'm cognizant when I'm dying, I hope I'm awake. I want to experience this. I want to understand what's happening. Hopefully I will meet it with fortitude and bravery. But when I lay down on my deathbed and I think about things I, about my life, I doubt I will say to myself, you know, I really wish I had spent more time looking at my cell phone, building my social media profile. I really wish I had been on the computer more, Googling kangaroos or whatever I was doing, you know? I, I like to use these things in order to inject myself into the stream of life, you know? I'm lucky enough to travel, or I used to be, with my band a lot. And when we're going to a city, I go on Google and I'm like, museums or, or what's an interesting neighborhood here or where's the what's the local food i want to go to the the place where that has the best whatever local it is you know and then i put the phone in my pocket and i go because i want to taste that food i, I want to walk in that museum I, I want to to see these things and i think the challenge right now and being stuck at home so much is there's a lot of things about my town and i think this is for anyone probably that they take for granted that, you know, become mundane after you're exposed to them daily. And I'm trying to really kind of broaden my perspective on where I live and go see some things I haven't seen in a while, or maybe find some new things, try and view the world in a different way. Randy, listen, honestly, so great talking with you. I appreciate your thoughts. Love the album. And I'm looking forward actually to seeing what you do with this photography stuff. I hope whatever it is that you're doing in the future, you come back on because it'd be great to talk with you. Yeah, for sure, man. It's been a pleasure. So there you have it. Randy Bly of Lamb of God talking about how being protean, flexible, and willing to change and adapt has played such a huge part in his life, not only in terms of his creativity, but also in his mental health and well-being. And we can learn from Randy about how to be a bit more protean in our own lives. 
Maybe we ask ourselves each day whether we are going into the day with an open mind, ready to accept and explore new ideas, situations, and experiences. Maybe when something surprising or even stressful occurs, we can take a moment to pause and remind ourselves that we would like to be a bit more protean and become curious about the situation rather than simply reacting based on strongly held pre-existing beliefs. Or maybe we can practice being protean by trying a new thing periodically so that change comes more naturally to us. However we implement it, we can consider how being more protean may help us understand who we are and how we will achieve our purpose in life. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you heard in the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make changes in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism therapy and coaching program at hardcorehumanism.com. See you next time.